like that I can hear Dayton singing in the background. <laughs> yeah, he, he likes to sing. Um, at some point, I may have to duck out because someone used all of our baking powder, and it's really hard to make banana bread without baking powder. Oh no! So Chris just ran to the store. My uh, mixer is just like continuing to spin. Just like going. <laughs> just to, it's like, good. Keep it. It'll be fine. Welcome. Who wants to go first? <laughs> Welcome to 1001 Reasons to Be Afraid of the Dark. I'm Chelsea, and I'm currently uh, looking at Dawn's close-up face in the camera, and that is another reason! <laughs> why I'm afraid. I'm Dawn's face. <laughs> I am Dawn, the one that's staring directly in the camera. <laughs> Due to COVID, we can't look at each other face-to-face, so we look at each other face-to-camera. Yes, I feel like I haven't actually talked to you in like a month. I know. We've been really busy with work, even though we see each other every day. I know. Well, I had to quarantine for five days. That's true, too. Yes. So what's new in the life of Dawn? Oh, you know, same old spooky stuff. Trying to overcome this COVID nonsense in Ontario, now that we are the laughing stock. (laughs) (laughs) Of the world. Of the world. (laughs) Great. Um, Is it true that Trudeau, like, surprised ford at some point this week with like a surprise visit to ask what's going on or was that just because there's like a bunch of like parody videos of that happening i'm like i don't know if that's true or not i don't know if that's true but there was news the uh yesterday that ford was like okay restaurants in toronto may 8th you can get you can start getting ready to open for may 20th what right before may 2-4 weekend oh my god can we say disaster oh my god and then he's like, okay, but international students, you can't come anymore. Oh. But don't worry, Flair. restaurants are okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then Flair, they're now uh, accepting flights for next week. What? Even though you can't fly. I'm so confused. Friends, this is social media and media in general in Ontario. They'll give you scary news, like how many people are in the ICU now. But then they'll turn around and say, you can fly next week. Yep. A little back ass words. Toddler (laughs) died of COVID last week, but don't worry, restaurants open soon. Great. Yes! It's it's a confusing time to be in. Everything's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Everything is crumbling around us, but it's probably fine. (laughs) It's all on fire. I feel like the dog with the room on fire. Yes. Constantly. It's like, don't worry, 40% of everyone's going to have their first dose of the vaccine by the end of this. Great! Maybe we can work on the full vaccine. Right? (laughs) It's like, oh, at least I got my first vaccine. I'm like, yeah, I have to wait four months until my second, and I'm in healthcare. Right? (laughs) What is happening? Oh, Oh, boy. Anyway. But this is our life. (laughs) We tell you stories. And just, you know add to the paranormal and true crime reasons to be afraid of the dark. Things that go up in the night. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tonight I am making chocolate chip banana bread. I want. Yes. I want. I chose the unhealthy route and went to the dollar store and got some Starburst and a Mr. Big. That's That's solid. Alrighty, who wants to go first? I'll let you go 
first. Okay. You're, I love your stories. I love, they just, oh, they're just so good. Okay. <laughs> very well written. In case you, people didn't know, Chelsea is a very, very gifted writer. So I don't even write. Story. So I wrote the like intro to that one um, Mangona's story. Yeah. Um, but the rest of it is mostly just like notes that I read Information. off. Yeah, just yeah. notes that I write down and then I just tell you about the notes that I have. Still well written. <laughs> so do you got a crime for me or do you got a I scary story? I do have a crime for you. Okay, okay. So I wanted to do this when I saw that Netflix was coming out with a series on this guy. So the new Netflix series called The Serpent. Yeah, so I decide as soon as I saw that was coming out, I was like, okay, I want to do all the research first because I know they're taking some dramatic liberties. Um, so I wanted to make sure I got all the research done first so I knew the actual story and then I can sit down and watch it and enjoy it. Right. So this is the story of the serpent. <sighs> I am going ready. to butcher a lot of these names. Um, also, there's a lot of names in the story. So if you get confused or anything at any point. Let me know. <laughs> okay. Um, Hachin Sobraj was a wealthy Indian merchant who lived in Saigon, Vietnam. In April 1944, he and Tran Lon Phung, a Vietnamese quote-unquote peasant girl, gave birth to their son, Hochen Baunani Gurmukh Sobraj. I definitely butchered those names. I'm so sorry. Um, shortly after his birth, um, Hochand Sr. left and married another woman from India. Tran was reasonably pissed and married a French military officer four years later in partial retaliation. <gasps> Which, like, respect. Um, <laughs> you go, girl. During the first nine years of his life, the family remained in Vietnam, but there was an ongoing war and a fight for independence. Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia were still part of the French Empire at the time and were referred to as Indochina or Lindochine. The name came from the amount of cultural influence China and India had on the region and clearly a lack of inspiration or creativity from the French government. Um, Japan invaded Vietnam in 1940 and declared it an independent state in 1945. However, the Japanese regime collapsed in August that same year when communist leader Ho Chi Minh declared the Democratic Republic of Vietnam and took over power. The monarchies in Laos and Cambodia remained under French rule, which led to the First Indochina War. This eventually resulted in Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam being declared independent states under the French Union, but fighting continued until the Geneva Conference of 1954, where the three countries gained independence. So that very brief history was to put um, the childhood of our, I don't want to say protagonist, because he is a very bad man. Um, <laughs> but our main character, um, just to put his childhood into perspective, as he grew up surrounded by international conflict and war. Um, so of note, when France left in 1954, the U.S. stepped in as financial support for southern Vietnam, which led to the Second Indochino War in 1955 which is the 19-year-long Vietnam-slash-American War. So um, in North America, we know it as the Vietnam War um, from the version of it that the U.S. tells. Um, and then in Asia, it's known as the American War because 
America wouldn't leave. Stubborn. <laughs> uh, story of everyone. Um, <laughs> History repeats itself. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, in 1953, Ho Chan's stepfather, so this is Ho Chan Jr. that we're talking about. So in 1953, Ho Chan's stepfather, the French military officer, moved the family to France. Ho Chan hated his new home and was the subject of racially motivated bullying at his new Catholic boarding school in Paris. So he was um, a mixed race. So he was half Indian, half Vietnamese living in France. Um, So there was a lot of racially motivated bullying at his Catholic boarding school in Paris. It was at the school that he got his nickname that most of the Western European world knows him as, Charles. So he got the nickname after apparently a strikingly accurate Charlie Chaplin impersonation. Yes, so from now on I will be calling him Charles because that is what he um, started going as permanently. So driven by his hatred for being in France, he would throw tantrums, wet the bed frequently, and eventually ran away twice in his teens back to Saigon. His father sent him back to France each time, and Charles eventually turned to crime for money to leave France on his own, again to return back to Saigon. After a brief stint in jail for robbery, he did make it to Saigon again for yet another uninvited family reunion. He wrecked his father's car and was sent to India to live with other relatives, but soon after ran away from them as well, back to Saigon before being immediately sent back to France. So this story so far is so sad. A kid grows up around war to a birth father who wants nothing to do with him, then is moved to France, which is the quote-unquote cause of that war. His boarding school is a nightmare where the children are racist towards him, so he tries to go home to Vietnam. But each time he finally gets home to be reunited with his birth father, he is turned away and sent elsewhere. So after being sent back to Paris for the final time, Charles began stealing cars. He was arrested and sentenced twice before claiming he wanted to apparently go straight. He married Chantelle Compagnon, who stayed by him after being arrested the same day he proposed. Again, for car theft. (laughs) I mean, shoot your shot, right? Right. He served eight months in jail, and they married after his release. After saving up 30,000 francs, thanks to some handy-dandy check fraud, he and Chantel moved to Bombay, which is now known as Mumbai, India. There, he set up the beginning stages of the criminal enterprise he began known for around the world. So Charles Sobraj became an international con man and jewel smuggler. His specialty was stealing passports from European and American tourists. In 1972, he and an unidentified female hired a chauffeur in Pakistan whose name was Habib. We don't know why, but Charles drugged Habib, which ended up killing him. So he dumped the body in a river. This was his first known murder. In 1973, he was arrested for armed robbery of jewels and was granted bail, even though he was able to briefly escape custody. He then fled to Kabul, where he was once again arrested and jailed for auto theft, and where he once again escaped custody. How much energy does this guy have? Oh, so much more. So, so, so much more. (laughs) Holy God. 
He and his half-brother went to Istanbul together to steal from tourists. They continued this for nearly two years throughout Southeast Asia and the Middle East before getting arrested in Greece. Because he was so nice to the guards, <coughs> bribery, uh, he managed to escape prison once again, but left his brother behind. He then traveled back to India, where he entered the heroin trade. You know, like a sensible person. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's now, what everybody is. Yeah. So how does one successfully enter the heroin trade, you ask? By drugging and torturing a local dealer for inside information and then killing him. Now, this must have sparked joy in him because this is when he really started to kill people. In October 1975, he killed American tourist Teresa Knowlton, who apparently threatened to expose his criminal enterprise. Her body was found burned. The New York Times believes Charles is responsible for between 12 to 24 murders. Dutch diplomat Herman Nippenberg said Charles wanted to create a cult-like family. The ones he killed were apparently the ones who began to see through his mask and tried to get away. Uh, Nippenberg spent several years trying to bring Charles to justice. He once told a journalist, if I had ever killed or have ordered killings, then it was purely for reasons of business. Just a job, like a general in the army. Uh, He was also quoted... um, to an Australian writer to say that anytime he killed someone, it was cleaning. He was just cleaning. Whatever that means. Mm. Yeah. Now, Marie Leclerc was from Quebec, vacationing east in search of adventure. While she was sightseeing, she met Charles. He wrote her love letters while they were apart and convinced her to join him in Bangkok. Her love for him was so blind that she did not care about his hobbies, career choice. Uh, She became his partner in crime. While in Thailand, they befriended an Australian couple on vacation. And by befriend, I do mean that the Australians thought they had met some new friends. But Charles drugged their drinks and robbed them while they were unconscious. (laughs) Yeah. Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, yes. Charles and Marie also took in a young French boy, Dominique. And by took in, I do mean subtly poisoned over a period of days to the point the poor kid thought he was dying of dysentery. (gasps) Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Mm Mm-hmm. Do we see a pattern developing? Once the boy viewed himself as in Charles' care and therefore debt, his health started to miraculously recover. Of course. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, Charles was busy befriending two French ex-police officers, although instead of using drugs this time, he used Marie. And while they were preoccupied, he robbed them as well. Now, when he robbed people, he stole their cash, any plane tickets they had, any jewelry and valuables, as well as their passports. When these two Frenchmen discovered they had been robbed, Charles was there to rescue them and let them stay with him, so they were now in his debt and could easily be controlled. Last but not least, the final addition to this group was A.J. Chowdhury from India. No drugs necessary here, as he was just as psychotic as Charles. He quickly became a close confidant and right-hand man. Now, Jenny Bolivar was an American tourist who was traveling in hopes of exploring Buddhism and meditation. 
after spending a few days with Charles et al., she was found in a flowery bikini. Autopsy results much, much later showed that her head had been held underwater and her death was not accidental as originally thought by police. Vitali Hakim was a young man who was similarly traveling in search of deeper meaning in his life. Some sources claim he was a rival heroin dealer, but most sources say he was a nomadic Jewish man that became friends with Charles and his group. After spending a few days together, Charles and Vitali had checked out of the hotel to go visit some friends. However, once he had checked out, Charles saw his opportunity. He beat him, then covered him in gasoline and burned him alive. Vitaly's body was left on the side of the road where police thought he had been attacked by bandits. And this is all still in 1975. Oh my god. In December 1975, a couple of Vitaly's friends came looking for him at the hotel. The front desk, of course, told him he had checked out and left, but he had apparently left a note for his girlfriend, Charmaine. So she soon arrived at the hotel and met the ever-so-charming Charles. Now, when Charmaine arrived looking for Vitali, Charles was in the middle of poisoning a Dutch couple he had met in Hong Kong and invited to visit him in Thailand. While he was ever so kindly nursing them back to health, he was worried that Charmaine would find out what he's up to, so he and good old AJ killed the couple, strangling and then burning them. So their names were Hank Batania, who was 29, and Cornelia Hemker, 25. Now, shockingly... Charmaine was also killed later that same month. So she was drowned similarly to Jenny and was also found in a flowery bikini. Jenny and Charmaine's deaths were not initially connected, but once they were, Charles was named the bikini killer. After killing Hank, Cornelia, and Charmaine, Charles moved his crime family to Nepal using the stolen Dutch passports. In Nepal, we know he met two female North American backpackers, but there seems to be some confusion as to what their names were. Some sources say it was Laurent Carrier from Canada and Connie Bronzic from California, whereas other sources say it was Laddie Dupar from the States and Annabella Tremont from Manitoba. Or that Connie's nickname was Joe. Either way... Both North American tourists were killed and their bodies were found burned on December 22nd, 1975. Charles was questioned by police for the murders, but was released. Using their two newly stolen North American passports, Charles and Marie returned to Thailand. He soon discovered that while he had been away, the two ex-policemen from France had discovered evidence of his murder hobbies. So he fled to Calcutta, India, where he then mur- murdered a student named Avani Jacob for his passport, which he used to go to Singapore with Marie and AJ. Oh my god. Yes. Crazy. Right? <laughs> and of course it'll be a year. <laughs> oh, my magic baking powder has arrived. <gasps> bread. It's time for the bread. I will return bread. shortly. Okay. Um, so he fled to Calcutta, India, where he then murdered a student named Avoni Jacob for his passport, which he used to go to Singapore with Marie and AJ. 
Now, in March 1976, we have finally changed years. Oh my gosh. A year later. (laughs) Charles made a trip back to Thailand, but was questioned by police about the people he had murdered there. So, decided that Thailand was a big nope, and immediately returned to Singapore. He and AJ then stole thousands of pounds worth of precious gems. You have to fund your life of luxury somehow, and ooh, shiny. Sparkle, sparkle. (laughs) Shortly following this theft, AJ disappeared and was never heard from again. Most reports speculate that Charles murdered him, but I have my own little wild theory that I will share after. Meanwhile, the Dutch diplomat that I briefly mentioned at the beginning was investigating the murders of Hank and Cornelia, the Dutch couple that Charles had been charming, seducing, and drugging when Charmaine had came looking for Vitaly. So AJ had killed them while Charles dealt with Charmaine. And Charles was the prime suspect, and police gave the diplomat permission to search his apartment about a month after Charles had left for Singapore. So that diplomat was Herman Nippenberg, as I had mentioned before, and Herman found documents in the apartment belonging to the murder victims along with poisons. So he continued to collect evidence against Charles for several decades to come. Aye, aye, aye. Yes. So back to Charles. He and Marie left Singapore and went to Geneva, Sweden to sell their gems and then returned to India in hopes to rebuild their drug-induced criminal family. Charles met tourists Barbara Smith and Mary Ether in Mumbai and recruited them into his family using his incredible skills in psychology. So some background info here. Charles was very well-read in psychology. So the reason he was named the Serpent was because of how good he was at talking to people and manipulating them. So he has been known to say that if he can talk to someone, he could manipulate them. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He was also very knowledgeable knowledgeable of gems and jewels, of course. So this combination is what made it so easy for him to manipulate prison guards and police officers throughout his criminal career. So Charles then tried to recruit a French tourist named Jean-Luc Solomon, but gave him too much poison and killed him instead of just poisoning and robbing him and making him vulnerable. Uh, Whoopsie! Oopsies! Oh my god. Yeah. In July 1976 in New Delhi, Charles, Marie, and their two new friends, Barbara and Mary, convinced a group of post-grad French students to hire them as tour guides. Charles wanted to poison the entire group and give them all dysentery. However, the drug hit the students faster than anticipated, and when the first students began dropping to the ground, the other students called the police. Yeah, like, no, not me too. Yep. So 20 of the 60 students were taken to the hospital. Charles and the three women were arrested and taken to Tahar prison to await trial. So they were arrested because some of the students that didn't collapse were able to actually, like, tackle them and keep them held while they waited for police to arrive. So, like, good for that. Yeah. Um, 
So Barbara and Mary were very quick to confess everything they played a part in. Of course, they had only just joined this group. Um, so they weren't quite as loyal. Um, but then Charles was convicted of the murder of Jean-Luc and the poisoning of the students. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Now, Tahar Prison is the largest prison in South Asia. Um, it boasts about its rehabilitation and education programs, where their goal is to work with the inmates in becoming respectable members of society upon their release and continuing their education. So, um, apparently, some inmates, even after they're released, continue to come back to the prison um, to finish degrees or something like that. So they started um, an education while they were in prison, and then if they didn't quite finish whatever degree or certification they were working on, they could continue to show up just for the classes. Which, like, sounds great. This is exactly what a correctional facility should be fostered around. Yeah. Uh, however, Tahar is known for its extreme corruption and brutality. <sighs> yeah. So if you have money, you can have a very comfortable or even luxurious life while serving your time. If you don't have the money, however, you are denied voting rights, access to your lawyer, a chair, you are not allowed to release your body to science upon your death, and inmates are paid to attack and brutalize each other. <gasps> mm -hmm. oh my God. Unless you can afford to bribe the guards, your food was two slices of bread and a cup of water. Mary and Barbara attempted suicide multiple times before their trials even began because of how horrible uh, Tahar Prison was. Charles, on the other hand, ate gourmet food, had a TV, threw parties for the guards and prisoners alike, and was able to walk freely in and out of the prison as he wished. Now, Marie Leclerc claimed innocence throughout her sentence, um, but she was sentenced to some time in the prison. Um, she returned to Canada upon her parole. Um, unfortunately, she died of ovarian cancer in 1984. Um, but she remained loyal to Charles until her death. Oh my gosh. Now, nearing the end of his sentence, there was an outstanding warrant for Charles in Thailand and for multiple homicides that was still good for another about 10 years. Now, upon his release from Tahar, he would be deported to Thailand and face the death penalty. Knowing this, Charles drugged all of the guards and inmates at once at one of his final parties and walked out when everyone was unconscious. No. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. He was arrested easily and given another 10 years in Tahar, just as he had planned. Just so he can escape Thailand. Just so that he wouldn't Execution. be deported. Yep. Yeah. So that he could continue <gasps> to live this very luxurious life and not face the death sentence. So would this warrant, like, expire after that 10 years, too? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so my gosh. You can have, like, outstanding... <gasps> what a sly piece of... Yeah. So you can have, like, warrants um, out for someone's arrest for crimes, like, internationally. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but I don't know the laws around it, but they do expire after a time. Yeah. Um, so the Thailand one had expired after that additional 10 years. So, nearing the 
and if his sentence, um, he was able to do that, gain the another 10 years in Tahar as he had planned. So when he finished this sentence, most evidence and outstanding international warrants were gone. So this was 1997, where he then left for retirement at the ripe age of 52. So he retired to France. He charged for interviews and tried for a $15 million movie deal. And when I say he charged for interviews, I mean thousands of dollars. Just so someone could speak to him. Just for an interview. And people paid him to interview him because he was so famous. It was insane. And he's a free man. Oh, there's more. (laughs) He even offered tips on an ongoing murder case in India. All the while, Herman Nippenberg was still building a case against him. So Charles undoubtedly got bored of France and not being a criminal. So in September 2003, he was spotted by a journalist in Nepal who called the local authorities. He was not welcome in several countries, and Nepal was one of them. He was arrested on September 19th. Then on August 20th, 2004, he was sentenced to life imprisonment for two murders that happened in Nepal. Most of the evidence in this case came from our good man, Herman Nippenberg. So in late 2007... Charles's lawyers filed an appeal to the French president for an intervention in Nepal, but the answer to that was a big old nope. Charles accused the Nepal court of racism and filed an appeal on their sentencing. The verdict for this appeal was postponed, and then on July 30th, 2010, the court upheld their verdict for a 20-year life term plus another year for the murder of Connie slash Joe plus a fine of 2,000 rupees for the passport fraud. Which, like, I'm sure he was able to pay the fine. No problem, because he's filthy rich. Yep. But you can't pay your way out of a life imprisonment. That's true. In 2008, Charles claimed to marry a woman named Nahida, but the Nepal jail authorities denied this claim and said it was just like a... There was um, a national day of celebration that day. They're like, no, they just were together during the celebration that we held in the jail that day. They're not married. Um, But he's still claiming that they are. They're not. Um, Charles is still behind bars in Nepal, and there is another case pending against him for the murder of Laurent Carrier. So, stay in jail forever. Goodbye. (laughs) How old is he now? Um, So he was... 52 in 1997 when oh, okay. he retired to France. So... He's in his 70s now? Okay, so... Here is my theory about AJ. So I think Charles was getting too confident and sloppy. The police in Thailand knew about the murders, and the Frenchmen knew who he was even if they did not know the extent of his involvement. So since he was a psychopath even before meeting Charles, maybe he stole extra gems and used them to disappear so he would never face jail time. Yeah, it's a good theory. That's, that's like, my initial thought when I was reading through. And then I saw that, like, people assumed that Charles had killed him. I'm like, yeah, but he had no motive to kill him. Like, 
he's a psychopath, so I'm sure he could think of lots of reasons to kill him. But unless he was suddenly turning against him, which seems unlikely considering their history, just fr from clearly my personal experience profiling people. <laughs> <laughs> She's a good people reader, but I mean, criminology? Maybe. Hey, I took two criminology classes in university. <laughs> Neither of them had anything to do with profiling. <laughs> That's, fair. That's fair. Yeah, so I have no idea. But that was just what my brain thought. Um, so yeah, so there is a Netflix series about his life. Um, and so this path that he took... Um, with all of these tourists it's called the hippie trail through asia so he would specifically target french and american tourists because he spoke french and english um yes yeah, so he was them. easily swayed into being like hey i speak your language don't worry i've got you well i'm glad he's in jail because i seriously want to go on this hippie trail right <laughs> he is in jail you're good i'm good but like, I mean, there's maybe... always others like him. Yeah. Yeah. That's the sad part. So, yo travelers out there, be fucking cautious. Yeah, Trust there are nobody. so many horrifying <laughs> stories of yeah. people traveling and, and they, tr they trust people. Yeah. Which is so sad. Yeah. Because, so... like, one of my favorite parts of traveling is, like, getting to know locals and, like, learning about yeah. the culture and shocking the sociology major is interested in the culture. <laughs> <laughs> one no more <laughs> but I really hope that he gets none of the money from the Netflix series I seriously hope not and I kind of I wouldn't think he would unless yeah I don't know he finds out about it and tries to sue or something I don't know I think they made a deal with the, uh, so there was an Australian writer who wrote a book about him who paid to interview him. During, yeah. Oh, so they're probably paying him. So they're probably paying the writer for some of the rights to yeah. that book. Presumably. Just based on the evidence that he yeah. Like, got, I would assume yeah. that Netflix is more ethical than that to be like, hey, let's make a series about this person who's still in jail. Hey, person who likes to charge people, we'll give you money. Yeah. Like I feel, I feel like they have higher ethical standards than that. I should hope. I think so too. There's so much more to those kind of contracts, right? Yeah. So presumably, I should hope they are paying the writers of the books on him. For sure. But yes, I'm excited to watch that Netflix series now I'm and see. I'm so excited now because you had me on the edge of my seat there. Yeah. Just in one year. Look how right? much you got. So, like, like, all of that happened. Not proud, but look how much you accomplished. Right? Like, I'm not impressed by it, but, like, I am impressed by it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so two years and he killed up to 24 people just from being a con man. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, that is. The story of the serpent. Oh, so good. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can't wait to see it. <laughs> well, are you ready for my tale? I'm so ready. Gather around, children. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have another location. But unlike 
the others that I've told, you cannot visit this place. They have it completely blocked off, and you will be charged with trespassing. I already think I know what where this is. <laughs> Do you want to take a guess? Nope, I just want to listen. You want to listen? Yeah, okay. I'll tell you if I'm right or wrong. So, I won't even tell you the name of it yet. I'll just start telling you a story, and I'll, I'll put the title in there somewhere. So, even just saying this person's name, Terry Sherman and his wife, uh, Gwen, purchased a cattle ranch for his family of four. And this was in, like, early 1990s. And just after 18 months of moving his family into the property, they sold the 512-acre parcel away after just 18 months. Curious. Yeah. So, of course, I am talking about Skinwalker Ranch, or also known as Sherman Ranch. Yay! It is not not what I was thinking about. What were you thinking? But um, So there is this prison... Um, I believe it's in Asia, um, but there's a prison that is so haunted that <gasps> they, and it's like on its own little island now. And like, you cannot go there. You'll be charged with trespassing. Like it is illegal to step foot on this place. They've just like left it abandoned because so many bizarre things happened there. Oh, that's so creepy. But I like the same with the, um, that forest in Asia. Yes. Or is it, yeah. They made that just... horror movie about it. Oh, so eerie, but I want to see. Mm-hmm. I want to. I like, want to go. Wanna see. <laughs> so, in 1996, Terry and his wife Gwen, uh, Gwen shared their chilling experience to a reporter, and they were basically telling stories of these mysterious crop sh- circles coming up, and we're talking like hundreds and hundreds of in- like instances or incidents that. They just couldn't explain. It just didn't make sense. So we're talking mutilation of their cattle that was done, like, surgically without any sort of blood splatter. Oh, God. Clean cuts, blood drawn. It wasn't, this couldn't have been an animal. Like, it's just, it's too, it was just way too eerie. We're talking about hundreds of instances this happened, and they're just, they have no reasoning. So I just got chills. Right? So... (laughs) They, of course, they're going to go to the news reporter. They're like, people need to know about this place. Mm-hmm. So um, within three months of the story's publication, a real estate and UFO enthusiast, Robert Bigelow, purchased the property. So if anybody recognized the name Bigelow, um, this guy is known to have a decent amount of money. And he was had, he had ties with Comb Keller, who also wrote a book about this um, ranch. Okay. So... Uh, Bigelow then went to set up around-the-clock surveillance around the ranch, hoping to get answers behind the paranormal claims. Unfortunately, they were unable to capture any physical evidence supporting the Sherman's incredible stories, Um, but there's always that curiosity. What's really going on here? So the ranch was then sold again and then obtained the name Skinwalker Ranch just because of the reportings, publicized people just wanted to want a creepy story that's what they're drawn to okay so even though there was lack of evidence it became a hotbed for paranormal sightings over the years that some extraterrestrial deemed it was like ufo alley for a lot of people i i can see how that connection was easily made yeah 
Uh, paranormal investigators um, and UFO enthusiasts have also claimed to have seen mysterious skyborne UFOs. They're talking like beam of light going up and down mm. in the sky. Um, other claims have been a mysterious large animal, notably like a wolf that was three times its size. Okay. Like of an average wolf, um, which Terry actually claimed he shot multiple times close range with a rifle and it had no effect on the creature. So okay. there have been sightings of beating eyes. Like we're talking about, usually he would claim about 400 yards out. And he's like, I want to know what's going on there. Okay. Um, so then in 1997, after the ranch has been sold, um, off the Shermans, the, a biochemist, Com Keller, um, was working on Bigelow's National Institute for Discovery and Science, claimed to see a large humanoid, quote unquote, creature spying on the research team from a tree. Mm. He explains more in his book, The Hunt for Skinwalkers Science Conference and the Unexplained, um, he claimed that the creature was about 50 yards away, watching the team safely from a tree and like just perching there watching and it wasn't mm-hmm. moving. So Combe fired at the creature with a rifle. Mm-hmm. It disappeared. And as he got closer to the area, he saw these footprints in the snow and just the way he described it was like, it was almost like a claw, but there was a claw in the back of it as well. So deeply embedded into it, he couldn't fathom what kind of animal it could have been. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, um, he explained it, it could have been a rap. It looked like a raptor print or something of a huge bird. So the term skinwalkers, actually, just a little bit of history on that, um, if anybody is familiar with the Navajo uh, tribe, mm-hmm. they're known in southwestern America. They are one of the biggest tribes there. Um, and they also have connection with the UT tribe. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. So uh, with the Navajo tribe, their religion was, it wasn't not unusual to have these shape-shifting witches or creatures. It was part of their history. They could transform themselves into any creature of their choosing and they would murder, collect things, right? Or even food. So maybe the whole cattle thing was, right? Mm-hmm. A whole thing. Um, however, the Sherman's Ranch was only nearly 400 miles north of the Navajo Nation. So not that far off. And then right close to that was the UT Tribe hmm. Nation as well. The Navajo and the UT Tribe um, didn't have the greatest relationship. Mm-hmm. So even with the UT tribe, they they didn't really believe in the shapeshifters. They preferably believed in the balls of light. But with the balls of light, they were also mischievous. So their folklore was that these balls of lights would come from the sky and go to the go into water. And if they attracted somebody, they would pull you under. Mm. So it was just a way to capture people like I that was just part of their folklore so I just thought that was super interesting especially yeah, with is. the indigenous people right and mm-hmm. their folklores and their stories behind it all and then the fact that in 1990s people were experiencing these phenomenons mm-hmm. right 
So um, the Navajo back then was known to be the more aggressive people. They have taken slaves from of the UT tribe and then became a direct conflict between both. So um, there had been other strange sightings just next door. It was called Bottle Hollow. It was a 420-acre man-made reservoir on the UT land, and it was filled with fresh water by the federal government mandate. In 1998, a police officer witnessed a, a light plunge into the reservoir, reemerge flying off into the sky. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? Oh. And it was a police officer, and he, he's like, well, I'm going to write this down. And then in 2002, four young men or four young men were um, standing on the reservoir of shoreline and saw a blue white ball enter the artificial lake once again, reemerging and zipping away and like the speed of light. Like it was almost like you saw a flashlight go woof. Mm-hmm. Again, couldn't explain it. Um, with the bottle hollow experiences, this just made more sense with the Yuchi tribe. They're like, yep, um, these were either evil spirits that would rise up out of the water and try and bring you in, like, drag you in. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, with off with these sightings off and on, um, it's now become more of an urban legend okay. than anything else. Um, but because of the urban legends, people are more attracted to do tar- dark tourism mm-hmm. to these places. But because now they're trespa- trespassing on private land, private ranches. There's another person that actually owns this right now. Um, I'm assuming he probably wants to make a home of it. So he's literally said, no trespassing. You can't come here. Mm -hmm. Um, No matter what you've probably heard or whatever evidence you want to try and collect, not here. So in 2016, Bigelow sold the Skinwalker Ranch um, for $4.5 million. Okay. And just to put it in perspective, um, when the Shermans bought it, they bought it for 200000 Yeah. So, with the gain in popularity and everybody wanting to try and purchase this ranch, um, it definitely gained um, some money. Mm-hmm. So now, even the name Skinwalker Ranch um, was filed for a trademark in 2017. Um, and just that's just to gain a little bit more popularity, especially after they made a movie about this place. Mm. Yes. So if you're ever around that area, I'm sure people have probably gone to Bottle Hollow to see the reservoir. Mm -hmm. And yeah, see what's going on there as well. It's super creepy. Interesting. That is creepy. Imagine looking out and seeing dead cattle and beady eyes in the bush and trying to shoot something and it's not going down and it's like three times the size of a wolf. No, thank you. Ugh. I like, I have so many questions. Like I 100% want to believe this, but at the same time, like I'm like, okay, what could it have actually been that then like the fear and perceptions around it then grew. So like it mixed reality with the imagination like what was it actually was it actually that or was it something else something else that just like made their imagination run rampant and believe that it was something bigger 
I definitely have a theory where this could have been almost a similar story as the Amityville Horrors, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. they would go on national television and they were profiting a lot off this house um, after uh, the previous family murders, right? Mm-hmm. This was the new couple that actually moved in. Um, same kind of deal where... Um, not saying the Shermans weren't lying or anything. I'm sure they've probably experienced something they couldn't have explained, but um, I'm assuming also that their name was also on that ranch. Sherman Ranch is what it's known for. They've gained um, decent money for it as well. So, hmm. yeah. Lots of stories. My goodness. So I don't even know how I would like respond to finding livestock like that. Yeah. Well, I Just do like know. He... I'd be like, vampires are real, or the aliens are here. <laughs> <laughs> they're taking my cattle, they're abducting them, and they're slicing them open, draining their blood. Oh, and also, fun little fact. Mm-hmm. Um, Skinwalkers are the chupacabra! I'm not 100% sure. That's what I heard, was chupacabra is basically a skinwalker as well. Like, according to Wikipedia, I mean, okay. don't really listen to Wikipedia, <laughs> but... Um, the first reported attack eventually attributed to the creatures occurred in March 1995. Weird. Literally in the same timeline. Uh, no, yeah, like, not. it's... A lot of them do stem from very similar events. Yeah, That's oh my god. Point. Three puncture wounds and completely drained of blood. Yeah! Uh, Chupacabra's so, real. Chupacabra's real, guys. So... <laughs> Chupacabra's real. That means skinwalkers are real, and that means don't live in Utah or Arizona unless you want to s- your cows to die and sheep die and can't explain it. And you shoot something that's like six feet tall and has bird feet. <laughs> okay, but if you I, like those things, go ahead. <laughs> I have decided that for the next episode, I'm going to do a full deep dive into the history of the chupacabra. <gasps> Just go do chupacabra. Yes. Alrighty. Well, now we know what to look forward to next time. <laughs> Ooh, stay tuned, friends. All, All right. right. Have a lovely night. You as well. Bye. Bye.